And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All of the Above. I'm one of your co-hosts, Jeffrey Garrett, along with Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. And hello and happy New Year's to our YouTube viewers. Jeff, any bright New Year's hopes and dreams for you? You know, I want to keep it relatively simple. I'm wishing mm -hmm. for peace and joy in our schools in the New Year. So. I hope our students come back with, uh, you know, a renewed sense of, of peace and possibility. And I hope for some joyful learning in classrooms. You know, is that too much to ask? I mean, you you speak about peace, yet clearly you have been waging a a war on Christmas here with your holiday neutral <laughs> holiday neutral decorations yes, here. Yes, yes, um, we have happy holidays, folks. Happy holidays. You hate America, don't you? <laughs> wow, wow. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Um, Thank you for tuning in. If you're listening on the go during your commute or early morning workout, listening to our podcast, uh, we thank you for that. Please go ahead and recommend this to the other podcast listeners in your life. And if anybody's like, no, I don't really listen to podcasts like that, let them know they're in luck because all of the above, of course, is a video show and they could go to aotashow.com and see the video version of all of our episodes. Jeff, what do we have on the agenda for today? Well, we got some good stuff, man. Well, we have, of course, our do now, which we always have, uh, fascinating headlines in education, a little bit of uh, banter and discussion about it. And then I'm super excited. We have a great seminar today. We have three special guests coming in and we're gonna dig into a topic that I think a lot of folks in our audience are really gonna find fascinating. Um, you know, America has always been a leader in public education uh, right. on the world stage. And yet, here we are in 2018 with... 2019, uh, man. Tw Just oh update your calendar, man. We're we in the future I know. right now. I made now. the mistake. We're in the future right now. 2019, and we still have schools that really struggle and have been struggling for years. Uh, and so we're going to dig in with our guests about... Um, how to help struggling schools and how to create sustainable transformation in schools that, that have long struggled. So fascinating topic. You definitely want to stay tuned for that. Sounds amazing. All right, folks, we're going to begin with the do now. All right, now it's time for our do now, where we take a look at recent headlines in education. And today, Jeff, we have a pop quiz. Mm. You ready? I'm ready. Let's All do right. it. First quiz question for you. Why are so many children being diagnosed with ADHD? Because uh, parents keep sending all the bad kids to school and they can't behave. Hmm. Is that right? Well, you might be onto something. Although there are no bad kids, Jeff. They're I know, all, I know, all I know. Come it's on, joke. Man. Well, joke, all right. Joke, so joke. there's a new Harvard study out that shows that um, students who are younger than their classmates are much more likely to be diagnosed as ADHD. Mm. Essentially, this study looked at records of children who started school early based on their state's enrollment policies, whether or not the student was born before September 1st or after September 1st. And the study showed that in classes where um, these policies existed and a student might be in class with classmates that are almost a year older than them, those students are 30% more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD. Mm. And the researchers say it's probably because of their observable immaturity as compared to their classmates. Yeah. I mean, uh, this story really hit home for me on a very personal level because uh, as we just actually talked about in our last episode, 
I was one of those kids who was really hyper when I got to kindergarten and the system uh, had I not had parents that were able to advocate for me probably would have played out with me winding up potentially being medicated mm. or being, uh, you know, referred for special education, um, you know, and we know that those things can have lifelong consequences. Right. right? And so uh, so this was really eye opening and, and just hit home uh, to me and, and made me kind of do the math. Right. Like if you're. If you are, uh, you know, that September child instead right. of the August child, you've lived potentially 20% more, <laughs> right? You did than, the than the child who was born right. in August. Like 20% is a large slice of life, right? right. So uh, in a certain sense, it's kind of like, duh, of course, this leads to huge developmental differences in right. kids who are, who are entering school. Yeah, in the study, you know, they compared these um, children. They looked at over 407,000 uh, children across the country and, and in states where these September 1st cutoff enrollment cutoffs don't exist, you know, they didn't find any correlation between the students um, age and ADHD diagnoses. So this really is eye opening and really points to even though the study looked at um, records, uh, medical records and, um, you know, rates of, of diagnoses, they didn't quite look at that original like referral for each student and how they got referred. But sort of the implication here is that they are in a class where um, they're observably more immature than their peers and either mm. the teacher or someone else at the school is letting the parent know yo your, your kid like can't sit still and there might be something here and that's you know leading to these diagnoses which you say which you point out have like long lasting ramifications yeah yeah and you know to to think about the number of kids out there who might be you know developing this whole identity as a hyperactive bad student troublemaker Right. Like what what is that doing to how many kids right. uh, and frankly, in our system today, how many of those kids are also boys? Right. We know right. boys are being dispropor uh, disproportionately diagnosed. So lots of, uh, you know, ripple effects here that that are fascinating that maybe just have to do with like changing an arbitrary uh, cutoff date. Yeah. Or, I mean, obviously training teachers or educating teachers on sort of, you know, uh, their perception of students and their their perceive like lack of being able to pay attention and mm. it's for me another reminder of how um sensitive and delicate the teaching and learning mm. process is and and you know there's so much at stake as a teacher entire future is at stake off yeah. of a, a simple comment to a parent that you know you might want to get your kid looked at because i can't get him to sit still and um really troubling stuff yeah yeah absolutely all right what's our next quiz question for today all right man well next up pop quiz what costs 4.4 billion and rhymes with lemonade. 4.4 billion and rhymes with lemonade. Hmm, I'ma go out on a limb and say financial aid. Ah, you would be correct, sir. Yeah. You would be correct. So, uh, fascinating story out of the state of California, a developing story. Uh, the California Student Aid Commission, which oversees the state's uh, pretty massive financial aid system for higher education, um, voted unanimously recently to endorse a package of changes that could provide uh, a huge increase to the Cal Grants program. Now, for those folks outside of California or maybe just aren't familiar, Cal Grants um, are the, the sort of main state-based financial aid uh, assistance program. And uh, this shift could bring uh, lots more money to students specifically to close the gap that lots of low-income uh, students and families face because Cal Grants had been focused on uh, 
on covering the cost of tuition. Right. This change would cover full cost of attendance. So travel, housing, meals, that kind of stuff as well. And that's that's lovely. I mean, because I think especially, you know, states like California where the cost of housing is skyrocketing and, um, you know, it's just the cost of living is skyrocketing um, for the state to acknowledge that, you know, students don't just need help with that tuition bill. They need help with these other costs because a lot of students, you know, um, I've had students personally whose tuition was covered for one reason or another, but they still didn't end off end up going off to um, University of whatever or, or Cal State, whatever, because they couldn't afford the housing in that city, in that area. So yeah. this is really promising. Yeah. Yeah, I had uh, just last spring a very similar experience um, helping to counsel some students who were uh, had received financial aid offers and needed to complete their decision-making process on where they were going to go. And met with a young man uh, who had been accepted to a Cal State that he was hoping to attend, uh, but he was going to be about $10,000 short uh, when it came to full cost of attendance, right? Mm. Uh, his uh, family, both parents work in fast food or making minimum wage, don't have the resources to take on a $10,000 loan or cover those costs themselves. Right. And it was just right there in front of me, the, the gap that even some of our most at need students are facing um, that shows the, the shortfalls in the current Cal Grant model. Yeah. And one thing that I really appreciate about this model is that this is uh, you know, targeted at uh, supporting uh, those in need and lower income and, and moderate income families. Versus I'm sure there's people out there thinking like, oh, why not just use that money and uh, give it to the colleges so that they can lower their tuition or, or what have you. But, you know, studies show and we'll link some of them on our website. Studies show that states where um, the the financial aid so-called is distributed to directly to the colleges and not to uh, the families. That tends to benefit middle and, and upper income families more mm -hmm. so than the lower income families. So for California to offer this aid directly to um, you know, in the form of need-based um, grants, in the form of a Cal grant, it's really promising. And you know, this is going to possibly double the amount of money that is currently uh, being spent on the Cal grant. But California is projected to have a, a 14.8 billion dollar increase in um, our general fund next year because of our our economy out here. And you know, hopefully, this this could get done. The legislature of California eventually has to approve this plan, but it's looking like. Um, it, it might be happening. Yeah, to that point, there are two state assembly members who apparently have already committed to uh, introducing this legislation, uh, you know, in the next session. And so, uh, you know, I think there's strong momentum. The, uh, the community college system has also endorsed this change. So um, lots of mounting political pressure to make this happen. And, and hopefully that's a great sign for, for young people in California. Indeed, indeed. All right, one last quiz question for today. Yeah. See what we got? All right, it's a tough one here. <laughs> All right, uh, Jeff, I know you've gone to some pretty esteemed colleges and universities in your time. Let's see, um, question here, is New Mexico really a state? <laughs> uh, yes. Prove it, Jeff, <laughs> prove it. Uh... I don't know how to do that. Yes, yes, New Mexico is a state. <laughs> so, um, you know, this is this is something that happened back in um, early winter. Um, D.C., Washington, D.C. Marriage Bureau, mm. uh, a man by the name of Gavin Clarkson went with his fiance to uh, get a marriage license. And Gavin, being from New Mexico, um, the clerk or a clerk at the D.C. Marriage Bureau um, did not accept his Mex uh, New Mexico driver's license as proof of identity because apparently this clerk did not realize or did not know that New Mexico is a state, not a country. Mm. This clerk wanted a passport. Mm. And um, I don't know, what's going on? Oh man, so 
there is a part of me that absolutely loved this this story because it's so perfect for the Trump era of America. Uh, and then there's a part of me that is so sad and despondent about this story <laughs> that I want to just crawl behind the table and curl up in a fetal position and rock myself to sleep. So, uh, you know, I mean, what, is, what does this say? Like, we have clearly failed as a current uh, right. social studies teacher and a former social studies teacher. I blame Common Core. America, we apologize that there are people working in government who do not know that New Mexico is a state. Uh, like, it's a state. We should probably know that. And that the manager uh, at the office also didn't know that New Mexico was a state. Yeah, so Clarkson said in a Facebook post after this incident, um, he said, you know you are from flyover country when you are applying for a marriage license, give them your New Mexico driver's license, and they come back and say, my supervisor says we cannot accept international driver's licenses. Do you have a New Mexico passport? Yeah. So yeah, the, the clerk and the supervisor, <laughs> and this is just all, you know, um, she thought New Mexico is a foreign country. And um, one detail that um, really stood out to me is that yeah. the clerk reportedly complimented Gavin Clarkson on how well he could speak English. Mm. He speaks so well. He speaks so well. He's he so really well speaks well. <laughs> thank you, Chris Rock, for that gift. Ah. And uh, thank you, DC Marriage Bureau, for reminding us all that if you keep going left in Texas before you get to Arizona, you're going to get to New Mexico. And it's a thing. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a place. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right, so that about does it for today's Do Now. And um, up next, we have our seminar segment, which is going to be um, a very, very thrilling discussion, um, bringing in some three, well, bringing in three very important guests. So stay tuned. American public schools are one of our most cherished institutions. We know this because the vast majority of people in this country have gone through our public schools. Most kids today are educated in public schools, and we think of schools as a great equalizer of opportunity. We look to our schools to teach everything, from how to use scissors safely to how to escape poverty. And we spend a lot on schools overall. And for the most part, it's money well spent. America is still globally a very well-educated nation. We are highly literate, and we have more people going to and graduating from college than ever before. And as we noted in a recent episode last fall, by nearly every metric that matters, our schools are, on average, doing better than ever. And yet, hiding within those averages are troubling equity issues. We have many stories of great success, and then we have schools that are struggling and have been struggling, sometimes for generations. Often these are schools that serve communities where poverty and its associated traumas are concentrated. The issue is, we haven't yet figured out how to help struggling schools transform and sustain that transformation over time. And it's not that we haven't tried. We've had federal legislation with fancy names like No Child Left Behind and Race to the Top. We've had state interventions and county takeovers. We've had research-based intervention programs. We've had consultants and consultants and more consultants. We've reconstituted schools where the principal and the entire staff were made to reapply for their jobs, and we've converted struggling schools into charters. Now, most of these reform efforts have had at least some success, 
And yet we still find ourselves in 2018 with a system of public education with vastly different outcomes by race, class, and other indicators. These, not surprisingly, are outcomes from a system with similarly varying levels of funding from district to district and even school to school. To put a number on it, a 2016 study from Stanford University concluded that sixth grade students in schools and districts with the highest concentrations of poverty score on average more than four grade levels below children in the richest districts in our country. So, if schools are a bedrock public institution, and we already spend a lot on them, and the vast majority of us use them and like them, then why have we had such a hard time helping our most struggling schools improve? And what can we do to fix this persistent issue? All right, welcome everybody to today's seminar. I am so excited. We have a fascinating set of guests for you all today. Um, immediately to my left is Dr. Ian Guidera. Ian is the Chief Academic Officer at the Partnership for Los Angeles Schools. Um, Ian's had a 20-year career in education, working as a teacher of all grades and subjects between kindergarten and eighth grade. Um, he also has been uh, a school leader out here in, uh, in South Los Angeles and previously led a school turnaround center um, for WestEd as well. Um, to Ian's left, we have Ryan Smith. Ryan uh, is the Chief External Officer for the Partnership. Um, Ryan uh, has rejoined the partnership recently after uh, a stint at Education Trust West. Um, Ryan has um, uh, also the distinction of being the founding uh, director of the Family and Community Engagement Team at the partnership as well. So. Uh, welcome back, Ryan. And uh, last but not least is Joan Sullivan. Joan is the CEO of the Partnership for LA Schools. Um, Joan is a, a former high school social studies teacher, uh, a founding principal of a high-performing uh, public high school in the South Bronx, um, and former deputy mayor of education here in Los Angeles. Uh, so welcome to all three of our guests. Um, we are, we're excited to have you here because um, it's hard for me to think of three better minds to have in one room to talk about our topic today, which is around transforming struggling schools. And so, you know, we live in America, the richest country in the world, um, and yet we have schools that have persistently struggled. Um, so to start off with, uh, Ryan, I'm wondering if I can throw this to you. Why in the country that's the richest in the world do we still have struggling schools? Well, I, I think uh, when we think about students who live in poverty, when we think about how we invest in schools, I don't think we've always made the right choices. Uh, it's sad that uh, California schools are still in the lowest, uh, I believe, 20, like the, the lowest 10% of states out there as far as um, per pupil uh, investment. Um, we know that even with more investment that's coming from the state, a lot of our schools, particularly uh, schools that have been under-resourced for decades continue to be under-resourced. And we're not making, in my opinion, the right choices. Um, one thing that I think this is a policy issue, absolutely. Where we invest does matter. But I also think it's a belief issue. There are folks who just believe that investing in traditional public schools doesn't make an impact. And somehow uh, the public has in many ways lost uh, trust that we are investing in schools the right way. 
I don't believe that. Um, I, I see investment, particularly working in a partnership, where we're thinking about building the capacity of adults, where we're thinking about wraparound services, where we're thinking about partnering with parents. But um, truthfully, we're going to have to do some mind shift work and some policy change work in order to uh, invest in students the way we should be doing. John, what do you have uh, to say? Why do we still have struggling schools, even in the wealthiest country in the world? Because we haven't outlawed private schools. Um, well, I do think that there is an issue of segregation in our public schools that's persistent, if not worse, than it was decades ago, um, and that uh, is is um, a part of a more systemic set of issues where uh, our resources aren't distributed uh, according to need, and so we are... Um, getting exactly the outcomes we should expect to get if we're not investing where the need is greatest. It is inevitable that there will be opportunity achievement gaps. And I think it is a question of will. How much do we, uh, are we willing to commit to the education of all children as opposed to our children? And I think that those are fundamental questions we have to ask and answer as a society. In addition to the fact that um, that uh, we uh, have a short attention span. And so to the extent that we are making the right investments, um, we're often not able to sustain our focus for long enough to see the efforts that have been undertaken through. And so that too is, I think, a big part of the challenge that we see in public schools is that um, because of a parade of superintendents and school board members and initiatives, uh, there's not continuity of effort. I would add um, schools are pretty much the most solid institution you could point to that sorts students, right? And we have uh, a well-meaning democracy that most people would um, describe our our country as being operated by. Uh, But really, I think it's actually, it's a caste system where um, low-income students tend to end up staying uh, as becoming low-income adults. And... um, they often attend schools where district policies traditionally sort of follow the, the ideas of mitigating risk and balancing budgets before they are about helping students get to and through college. And I think to Ryan's point, we have to look for policies, sniff out policies that sort of maintain the status quo in that way and then be courageous about implementing policies that, that are actually built to do something for those students differently than we currently do. So, Joan, let me ask you. the. Um Partnership for LA Schools is a pretty unique player in this space of, of transforming schools. What exactly is the partnership and what makes it different from other efforts nationally to transform schools? Well, I'll start by saying that there aren't a lot of other efforts nationally um, independent of the work that districts do every day because uh, there is a persistent belief that it can't be done. Uh, And so a lot of people shy away from the challenge of tackling um, or meeting the needs of our of our of our struggling schools um, because it's hard work and because the path to success isn't always clear. But, uh, you know, from the partnerships perspective, we don't see an alternative. These schools continue to exist. They continue to serve um, talented children who deserve uh, every chance of success. And um, and so. 
there aren't a lot of efforts out there. We're among a handful of external operators of district schools, um, and uh, and so that in itself distinguishes us. We also um, are one of the biggest turnaround operators in the country. We have 18 schools, 15,000 students in three different communities, Watts, Boyle Heights, and South LA. We also serve feeder patterns. So we serve elementaries that feed into middle schools that feed into high schools because we believe that the the biggest opportunity lies in starting with kids when they enter school and seeing them through college and then also um, being a part of of uplifting communities. The other thing that distinguishes us uh, is that we live in the system, in the second largest school system in the country, in the largest system operated by a school board, one that serves over half a million students, because, not because it's easier, right? It, it, it comes with a lot of challenges working in a large bureaucracy, but because it gives us um, the opportunity to scale. That is to say, we are in a position to address the needs, not just of the 15,000 students that um, inhabit the schools we serve, but the 500 plus thousand students who inhabit the larger system because we can both promote, pr propose and promote um, policies and practices that would benefit the larger system. So uh, Ian, I think I wanna throw this to you first, but um, how do we <clears throat> create lasting change in schools that are struggling? We've, um, you know, in, in many ways, if we look at the sort of national average, uh, our, our schools are doing better than ever before. We have you know, the, the highest or just about the highest graduation rate in history, largest numbers of students moving on and persisting in college, which, which seems like you know, we're moving in the right direction, and yet we have these pockets uh, that, are, that are very much uh, you know, experiencing huge gaps uh, in opportunity and, and achievement um, with uh, you know, those averages. So how do we create lasting change um, in schools that have long struggled? Um, well, I think we don't have a ton of knowledge in the school improvement com community that uh, would point to proof that there is um, long-term long change that is scalable right, across multiple schools. So I think a lot of our ideas are untested, but I think in the partnership, we believe it's about building systems in schools and around schools that are focused on building the capacity of the folks who do the hard work of getting kids to and through college every day. If we just focused on finding the rock star principal or the rock star teacher as a turnaround model, then when that person leaves, they, so goes the, the talent that they brought with them. So, um, you know, that a lot of our work is figuring out how do we collectively support every role within a school so that um, folks can do their job well and evolve in it over time. And then it withstands change when you have folks built, um, their capacity built around systems inside of a school that can, can withstand talent uh, changes. Mm -hmm. And Ryan, I know um, in particular, the, uh, a lot of the work that you oversee at the partnership also involves uh, leveraging partners and bringing additional resources to, to schools. And you, you, know, you spoke uh, you know, already at some, some detail about the huge need for resources. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm wondering if you can add to this, like in addition to the kind of systemic, uh, the building of systems that Ian is talking mm -hmm. about, um, 
what do you see as uh, as kind of the the path forward in terms of creating change in schools that have long struggled? Yeah, so the last four years um, as executive director of EdTrust West, where we talked a lot about how we close opportunity and achievement caps. And one of the reasons I came back to the partnership is what I realized is we talk about prioritizing the schools that have been historically underserved, but doing that type of work, um, not only is it hard, um, it usually is a, it usually comes at deficit mindset. Well, these communities have so many deficits. Their their parents don't care. They work three jobs. Um, but what I noticed when I worked at the partnership, and now coming back to it, is actually these parent these communities have a lot of assets. These parents want to be involved. We're talking about how do we build the structure so that we're welcoming them. How do we ensure that our educators and our principals know what it takes to uh, bring many of our communities back into the fold? Schools can't do this alone. We have to do the asset mapping of community partners and school-based providers who can provide the type of social emotional supports and wraparound services necessary to uplift schools. And I, you know, I, I believe that schools are the centers of communities, but they can't do it on their own. So I'm excited to invest in pockets of Los Angeles to, to me that are actually the jewels of LA. South Los Angeles, Boyle Heights on the east side. Watts, these are proud communities that really care. They're historically under-resourced, but care about how their students are doing. And I'd like us to flip the narrative to say that these are the communities that matter the most when it comes to schools, not the communities who've left schools behind, which I just don't believe. So these um, ideas that have been shared so far about building systems and, and addressing uh, areas that have historically been looked at with a deficit mindset and been under-resourced. Is it realistic that as a, just nationally, um, that we could bring that sort of change across the board? Um, how do we make this happen in other districts, areas where there is no partnership, there's no intense focus on these communities and, and bringing them in? How do districts in other parts of the nation like even begin with this? Is that even realistic? I think that comes down to the, the courage of local and national uh, policy makers, right? So <clears throat> how, do we, how do we create better policies that are about protecting schools that are the, in the, the, the communities that are the gems of, of each state and each, each major city? I mean, you can imagine um, uh, equity-based policies around uh, training, t training teachers and placing teachers and um, reinforcing teachers who stay in certain communities. Um, I think there are, there are pockets of these ideas around the country that, that we can point to, but it, they're sort of new and, and untested as like a national model for how to, how to drive federal policy. Uh, doesn't mean we haven't tried a, with a lot of federal policies over the years, like right. No Child Left Behind, uh, school improvement grants, um, Race to the Top, all of those things. You know, I think we learned uh, sort of small ideas that might be scalable, but um, I think one thing that sort of separates out what we believe with the partnership is that long-term sustained uh, investments in school improvement is the way to go, as opposed to how our federal policy making has, has gone in the past 20 years, which is three or four years of, of funds around an idea. Um, and once, once the funds are gone, the idea goes with it. Yeah. So, uh, Joan, I'm, I'm gonna throw this to you first, um, but you know, the partnerships had some success. And so why don't we just do what the partnership is doing everywhere? Like, is that the key or what, what is the key? Well, I don't believe that there is any single answer. I, I, in the same way that I don't think 
large ur urban districts or even mid to small districts should be coming uh, uh, at the issues from on high with a single set of solutions. I do think we need to, so uh, we need to differentiate, right? And, and that's gonna be true by state and by community. Um, and so when I think about the work of, of transforming mm -hmm. Uh, public education, I think of the school as the unit of change. So we're not so much trying to create a, uh, a great school systems, but systems of great schools. And um, that means that you are putting power in the hands of principals and local communities. And I, I believe that at the, at the district level. I also believe that across the sector. That said, I do think there are some lessons that the partnership can teach um, other states and districts among them that it's important to consider a portfolio model where the district isn't the only entity working in the system and running schools, that there are public-private partnerships that can be formed that bring additional resources into the system, additional ideas into the system. And so it's important to say that the partnership is a nonprofit that runs district schools abiding by all labor agreements and um, working within the constraints of the system so that we can we can change the system using an infusion of dollars to pilot innovations that we think will benefit our highest um, our highest priority communities like the ones that we're serving which have been historically under resourced um, and so and 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 so that's that's one that's one lesson I think we can learn I think we can also learn um, from the partnership in the sense that I think a lot of our progress has been the consequence of that continuity of effort, which has been possible because we aren't subject to the changing tides of a school board, right? We can see our initiatives through and we've learned a lot over time, both from our successes and our mistakes. And that has been um, a powerful part of the progress. And the other thing that I sort of alluded to, and I'll just come back to, which I think is, is, is vital, um, uh, Ryan spoke to it, is leveraging partnerships. How do we connect our schools to a broad array of resources? A lot of times people say resources aren't the issue, and it's true. We could spend infinitely on our schools and not get great results if we don't marry it with good policies. That said, there's a reason that those of us who have resources are sending our kids to private schools for $30,000, $40,000 a year and then layering on that the cost of private tutors and everything else, and then you know the cost of taking our kids abroad or sending them to summer camp or getting them in uh, piano lessons it's because those those that um, uh, array of resources and opportunities and experiences is what inspires and engages our, our kids and so in order to do that we need partnerships and that's something that um, our organization has been able to do well is, is leverage partnerships and then the third thing is that when you're thinking about the school as a unit of change it's not just continuity but each school is dramatically different and so you have to think about that community um, individually and figure out how to get to equity not just in in small increments but in dramatic increments each school um, will need a very different approach uh, and that applies whether you have five schools 50 schools 500 schools or 1500 schools uh, you you need to be differentiating from school to school uh, well i think uh that's a great note for us to end on um i want to thank our three guests today uh ian guidera ryan smith and joan sullivan thank all you 
uh, from the Partnership for Los Angeles Schools. And even though this episode is ending, I have the distinct privilege of seeing these folks at work on Monday. <laughs> uh, so I consider myself lucky. Um, but also, um, all of our viewers can check out our episode extras. We're going to have one-on-one -on -one interviews with all three of these folks. Um, so much more to check out on our website, uh, which is aotashow.com. Man, Jeff, you were right. That was a uh, very powerful seminar. We brought in some really powerful folks in education for that. Yes. Um, that was excellent stuff. And actually, it was it turned out to be a little bit too powerful for just one episode. <laughs> the extended version of that discussion, which is uh, much lengthier than what you just heard, the, the full uncut version of that discussion is available right now at our website, aotashow.com. All right, so, so go back to that. And of course, the one-on-ones are there as well. There's a lot more than what you heard in just this one, um, this one episode. Now, now it's time for Class Dismissed, though. And Class Dismissed is a moment in our show where we shout out people doing excellent work in education. And last season, it turns out we had a Class Dismissed that we are going to have to retract. Whoops. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, we gave a special shout out to a lot of those videos that went viral where students were um, looking at their co college acceptance notices. And, you know, I'm sure you remember uh, the video of a young man uh, at a laptop with all of his, his peers behind him. And he was looking to see if he was admitted to Harvard. And, and, you know, the video shows him see that acceptance on his screen and everyone goes nuts and dances and crazy and very great feel good video. But it turns out there's a bit of a problematic backstory to that. Jeff, can you uh, fill us in? Yeah, I would say it's more than just problematic uh, that this is an official uh, retraction of our <laughs> of our shout out from last year. So uh, the story is uh, the New York Times did a, a big expose on the TM Landry School in Bro Bridge, Louisiana, uh, which uh, is an independent school there that apparently has a very um, seedy underside to it. So what we saw in those videos of kids being accepted to Harvard and Brown and Columbia and all these wonderful places uh, seems to have been built on a foundation of uh, fraudulent transcripts uh, on fake uh, stories uh, designed to make kids seem more sympathetic in their college admission essays and in even issues like um, psychological and physical abuse of children. So just some some very troubling allegations made against this school and not only just uh, immediate, right? Like this has uh, apparently been going on for uh, for some time now. So, uh, you know, we we have been hoodwinked and swindled bamboozled. and bamboozled. And, uh, you know, I know there's a lot of other schools out there that are doing this type of thing. So sustained and continued props to you. But uh, TM Landry School, unfortunately, we gotta, we gotta take that back. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully our first and last class dismissed retraction. So sorry about that, folks. Now, uh, thank you for tuning in to this episode. And remember to hit our website, aotashow.com, for links to the stories that we discussed, links to studies that were mentioned, a full uncut version of the seminar, and those one-on-ones with our seminar guests. Just a whole lot available there, aotashow.com. And we look forward to you joining us next time.